I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello? Hello? <clears throat> Podcast Network Asia. Network Asia. Welcome to She Talks Peace, a podcast that highlights the role of women peace builders around the world in bringing lasting peace and security to communities. Eavesdrop on their communities and get to know their stories. From the Philippines to Malaysia, from Indonesia to Palestine, from Myanmar to the United States, their dreams and hopes for a world without violence and a world where every woman and girl can be whoever she wants to be. Hosted by Amina Rasul Bernardo, President of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy. This is She Talks Peace. Salam, dear listeners. This is Amina Rasul of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy saying hello, please be with you from Manila. Welcome to She Talks Peace and thanks so much for joining us. My dear listeners, first I must share some sad news. Former President Fidel V. Ramos passed away last week on July 31. I was his presidential advisor on youth affairs, tasked with establishing a government agency to nurture youth and ensure that government plans incorporated their needs and aspirations. I organized the National Youth Commission for him. We mourned the loss of a leader who had a vision of a strong and resilient Philippines, of a government that was inclusive, of national leaders who truly cared for the welfare of their people as they worked to strengthen the economy and government institutions. He was steadfast and consistent in this commitment. That's why we called him Steady Eddie. He cared deeply for peace and reached out to groups fighting government. He made sure the affected communities, civil society, women, youth, were consulted by government on the issues being negotiated. The negotiations with the Moro National Liberation Front finally resulted in the signing of the final peace agreement on September 2, 1996. This was the very first peace accord in Asia. President Ramos and MNLF Chair Miswari received the Felix Pufet Bonin Peace Prize. This UN award honors living individuals and active public or private bodies or institutions that have made a significant contribution to promoting, seeking, safeguarding, or maintaining peace in conformity with the Charter of the United Nations and the Constitution of UNESCO. The peace process definitely had its ups and downs, but President Ramos never let 
the downs deter him from the path to peace. Thank you, our steady Eddie, for your consistency and constancy. You know, dear listeners, if President Ramos were alive today, I think he would be writing a column on the topic that we will be tackling, that of humanitarianism. World Humanitarian Day is commemorated every year on August 19 to pay tribute to humanitarian workers killed and injured in their work and to honor all aid and health workers who continue, despite the odds, to provide life-saving support and protection to people most in need. This day was designated in memory of the August 19, 2003 bomb attack on the Canal Hotel in Baghdad, killing 22 people, including the chief humanitarian in Iraq, Sergio Vieira de Melo. In 2009, the UN formalized the day as World Humanitarian Day. You know, today we are feeling the impact of crisis upon crisis, conflict, a climate crisis, COVID, oh my God, this global pandemic, hunger, displacement, extreme weather, Russia's war on Ukraine, which has worsened world supply of wheat, leading to rise in hunger in countries already reeling from poverty. It has created an economic crisis with the rise in gasoline prices, affecting countries like Sri Lanka. Did you see the television accounts of citizens overrunning the presidential palace, forcing the president to flee and the government to fall? And then just recently, China has waved the flag of war after Nancy Pelosi, U.S. Speaker of the House, visited Taiwan. Geopolitics will most certainly send shockwaves that will reach our shores and might exacerbate humanitarian crisis. However, my dear listeners, optimism remains. The UN has actually distributed a handout on World Humanitarian Day, and it states, The truth that every hour of every day, humanitarian work continues, and it saves lives. It may seem complex or far away. It is often invisible, but it is indispensable. This year, for World Humanitarian Day, we go back to basics to show the importance, effectiveness, and positive impact of humanitarian work. And the brochure goes on to say, there is a saying that goes, it takes a village to raise a child. Similarly, hashtag it takes a village to support a person in a humanitarian crisis is now the slogan for World Humanitarian Day. There are teams working all over the world, helping millions of people every day. Now, according to UN Women, Pastors kill more women than men and hit women's livelihoods hardest. According to their reports, 60%, for instance, of all maternal deaths take place in humanitarian settings. 
and all forms of gender-based violence against women and girls spike during disasters and conflict. Experience and research, according to UN Women, show that when women are included in humanitarian action, the entire community benefits. But despite this, women and girls are often excluded from decision-making processes that shape the response strategies that affect their ability and that of their community to recover from crisis. Women must be included in decision-making about the forms of assistance, means of delivery, and the provision of the protection and economic and social empowerment opportunities they need so they can be agents of change. And I 100% agree with that description by UN Women. Now today, my dear listeners, we have as our guests three fantastic women from Mindanao who have been working tirelessly to address humanitarian crises and humanitarian problems. First, we have, I'm not going to say old because she's not that old I am. We have attorney Liza Masuhud Alamia, who is currently a member of the Bangsamoro Transition Authority and is the minority leader. The BTA is the parliament of the Bangsamoro Autonomous Region in Muslim Mindanao. Our uh, MP, Liza, chairs the task force for the commission combatants and their communities. She served in the then Autonomous Region in Muslim Mindanao, or ARM, as its first and only woman executive secretary. This was from 2013 to 2019, before ARM became BARM. In 2013, she was the first chairperson of the ARM Regional Human Rights Commission. She's an advocate and has always been an advocate for women and children's rights. She has represented and lawyered for marginalized women. And do you know that she's also a nurse? She is the founder and president of Kalisa Action Network, Inc., a network of women's groups and advocates that advances the rights and welfare of women and children in BARM and the Zamboanga Peninsula region. Our next guest is Melindi Banyas Malang, a humanitarian affairs officer with over 25 years of experience in humanitarian development and peace-building work in Mindanao. She is the head of the sub-office in Cotabato of the UN Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, or UNOCHA, and she chairs the Mindanao Humanitarian Team. It's a subnational coordination platform that involves all the other relevant UN agencies. She once served as the coordinator of peace education of the Notre Dame University, and she has been a teacher. Also, like attorney Liza, she is a nurse and has a doctor of philosophy degree in peace and development. Our third guest is Daphne Makatimbol, who started working in humanitarian and development since 2008. In 2012, 
She joined the Nonviolent Peace Force in the Philippines. She is the gender advisor and leads the implementation of all their programs related to gender and women peace and security. Now, she has been working on child protection in emergencies, monitoring and reporting mechanism on grave violations against children's rights. She's been involved in an armed civilian protection and peacekeeping and mental health and psychosocial support. Welcome our dear MP Liza Alamia, welcome Melindi, and welcome Daphne to She Talks Peace. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Hello, Liza. Hi, is that Melindi? Yes, yeah, sorry. Thank you, Miss Amina. Salam. And hi, Daphne. Good to see you. Thank you. Thank you, po, Miss Amina. And salam alaikum, everyone. You know, ladies, I really don't know where Attorney Liza gets her energy. She just arrived in Manila. I think she just got off the plane. And here she is already chatting, chatting with us. Liza, I really don't know how you, how you manage it. Your work in the BTA, continuing your humanitarian work. Are you okay? Our dear MP Liza? I'm okay. I have other means of uh, relaxation and also uh, some debriefing moments. Good for you. By the way, Attorney Liza, do you cook? Ah, yes. yes. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> we have to have a side conversation later because I have this idea for a cookbook <laughs> that would weave in our history I mean, among our indigenous communities with our cuisine. So let's, let's oh. chat about that. Cook to cook. I'm not as good a cook as you probably, but never mind. I mean, let's... Uh, Let's focus on an easier task for me, which is to talk to you about humanitarian work. So let's start with uh, our member of the parliament, uh, Liza Alamia. You have always known that the role of women and how women add value and sustainability to reconstructing the lives and communities of our people is critical to success. So tell me, MP Liza, what has your experience been in uh, the autonomous region? Are women fulfilling their role? Are women making an impact? And is our government supporting our women? Well, definitely women are making an impact. Bangsamoro women um, and even other women who go to the barn and the previous autonomous region in are making an impact. But if you ask me if this impact comes from a number of women that's sufficient enough to create a more impact, the answer would be negative because there are only a few women who are actually involved. So, for example, if it is about humanitarian responses, there are a lot of women who are involved. But when it comes to decision-making and policy-making, so like, for example, uh, my experience has ranged from doing human rights work and human rights advocacy to humanitarian response when, in 2013, I, together with other personalities from the ARMM, set up the first uh, ARMM Humanitarian Emergency Action and Response Team, or the ARM-HEART 
which has now been renamed as BARM Ready in the current dispensation. So when we first started, there were only a few women involved in actual response. And there were only a few women involved in policymaking, in decision-making as to the direction, directions of all the plans and programs that were being implemented. It's the same now in the barn, or maybe even worse, because there are only 13 of us out of 80 in the parliament. So 13 women out of 80 members of the parliament. And so I have experienced some challenges in pushing for policies for women and children, especially women and children who are in the middle of displacement or who are in conflict-affected areas. So like I filed an IDP bill in 2019. It would be the first IDP law in the country, considering that the IDP law at the national level has not been passed. So it has been very difficult because the bill is languishing right now at the committee level. So it's not a priority. Excuse me for butting in, Attorney Liza. There may be few of you, but I've had uh, conversations with the other women members of parliament. And I think there may be fewer quantity, but Quality-wise, I think you're really making a big difference in uh, the Baksamoro Transition Authority. But you know what you have uh, cited, the fact that there are less women in decision-making, it's something that's not just true for the Baksamoro Autonomous Region, but uh, nationally and internationally. And um, it, this is, maybe maybe I should ask uh, Melindy, who's with uh, uh, the UN. Melindy, what is really being done so that we can have more women being part of decision making, participating in managing programs, especially in the fields of uh, humanitarian work? I mean, are we having a setback here, less women? Or, you know, are there moves to push for more women in decision making? Thank you for that uh, question, Ms. Amina. And I think everyone agrees that um, when crisis hits, you know, pre-existing conditions already exist uh, in terms of vulnerability and risk for women. And these are reinforced the moment there will be disasters. So within OCHA, even here in Mindanao now, it's really like priority. It's one, having gender equality is uh, as a, so parity, gender parity is really like an, it's a non-negotiable. It's one of the priority of the organization. And in fact, here in Mindanao, we have our gen, gender expert given for, you know, sent here to improve our integration of our gender, the, the gender aspect in humanitarian response. So currently we're looking into the different gaps in coordination, in leadership, even in how we implement the programs. And there would be successive action plan that will be implemented to make our gender programming in humanitarian response uh, stronger. So yeah, there's that conscious undertaking that's going on. And uh, the one that will benefit is even if it's among us, the Mindanao humanitarian team, it will eventually, you know, benefit the communities we serve because this is really about having greater accountability to the affected populations, which is majority um, that are under unserved or underserved 
our women and children. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm glad you have that optimism. Now let's, let's ask Daphne. Daphne, you've been working at the ground level in humanitarian and development work. So tell us what you've seen at the community level. Are more women involved? And when women are involved, what impact do they make? in the communities that you've worked in. Uh, thank you for that, Mom Amina. I agree with uh, the, the both of the two speakers, no, with Attorney Liza and Ms. Melindi, that women are dis- disproportionately represented. No? Now, when it comes to the, at the grassroots level, for example, during the humanitarian crisis, when the Marawi siege you know, transpired, there's a lot of, I think, organizations that also look into how women will be, you know, how to maximize the potentials of Maranao women in terms of economic enterprise. So it really, I think for me, impacted the response you know, that organizations provided during the Marawi response when they did services in terms of economic and livelihood opportunities for women since that time, because of the, you know, the situation, men have a limited access to livelihood and women are facing multiple burden because of that. So when the organizations provided that access to you know, economic opportunities for women, it also somehow elevated or provided some certain level of ease when it comes to the needs of the family. And when it comes to grassroots participation, uh, women's participation, at this moment, I think uh, there is a platform for women to participate, but not all women in the community. You know, let's say maybe women leaders have platform, but those women in the communities who are ordinary mothers or ordinary women in the community are still very limited opportunities for participation. 
we haven't really reached out enough to the ground level. That's what you're saying, Daphne. Yes, but that's why, like, for example, reach out more. Yeah, with non-violent peace force, for our one of the areas that we are focusing now is working with the Bangsamoro Islamic Women Auxiliary Brigade. That's the armed wing of the MILF in terms of the normalization process. Because as you can see, in terms of the ratio of number of decommissioned combatants, women combatants have lesser in terms of the ratio. So nonviolent peace force with the support of other international donors, we are also working with these former women combatants to support them in terms of the reinte- in their reintegration to the community and how they will you know, uh, contribute as well in terms of the sustaining you know, the gains of the peace process at the grassroots level. You know, I think Attorney Liza probably has a lot more experience than the three of us when it comes to engaging with women at the at the community level because long before she joined Farm as a senior official, she had been working tirelessly with uh, the NGO, uh, the NGO community. Attorney Liza, the work that you were doing engaging women in Basilan, in Zamboanga, and, and in other places, was it difficult to get women to become more uh, participatory in decision-making? Was there a, a cultural impediment? And how did you overcome that to get women to assume more leadership role? Well, yeah, that's true. There were some impediments, especially cultural and pseudo-religious uh, yes. But eventually, when we were able to, for example, uh, get champions from the men, mm-hmm. um, I, that was one of the key interventions uh, that was successful at that time, is to get champions from men to support women who would like to be more politically active, not in politics, not just in politics, but become leaders of organizations or in their communities or even in groups of barangay health workers, for example, or or HELOT. So these impediments, once their minds have been opened and they have undergone uh, capacity building, you can see that women are very adaptive to any situation and they're raring to really contribute. And and, and so I agree with what Daphne was saying. Uh, That's why even until now, as chair of GPH at EFDCC, I've been pushing for the involvement of women. It's the clamor of organizations like uh, Daphne's organization and the BWAB. So I've been pushing for the involvement of women in dispute settlement mechanisms, not just in the RIDO, but also in the ongoing GPH MILF peace process. Like, for example, the independent oversight or implementing bodies on normalization and decommissioning, comes transformation, including disarmament or uh, these small arms and uh, this ammunition management and transitional justice and reconciliation. So we're pushing for not just an increase in the number of uh, decommissioned combatants who are women coming from the BWAB, but also an increase or the inclusion of BWAB women in the JPST. That's a Joint Peace and Security Task Force that, that was formed 
between the PNP, the AFP, and the MILF uh, BIAF. So the BNUB should be yeah, good. But, but uh, Attorney Liza, I think first you have to share with us your secret about how you approach the men, starting with your husband. Because I think, ladies, Attorney Liza has a very supportive husband. So how do you manage that, Attorney Liza, to convert a macho Muslim man to support the participation of women as leaders? Ita usog man at that. Right? Oh my goodness. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, very difficult. But actually, the opposite is true. I would say that I think the Bangsamoro men are more inclined to support women. It, it's, it's just that women should, should assert more and explain what is the reason. And I, uh, Ma'am Amina knows this on how to approach. So there, there are layers of, uh, of approaching and multidimensional approach mm. in yes. convincing men, including the ulama, uh, yes. and decision makers at the, in the communities. And, and not, it's not, it's not just using the law. It's also using uh, religion, using feminist legal methodology. So I've used that when I was mm. taking up my LLM, make an analysis of particular issues like harmful practices on the ground in Muslim communities, and then juxtaposing it with international law and the national laws and the laws that we have in, in the region. So if, if that's the case, and uh, we look at the lived realities of women and children and appeal to their moral responsibility as men, that they have a responsibility to protect women and children. And, and so if we use that kind of approach and they see that there is a problem and that the only way to resolve this or alleviate the situation is by, for example, following the law, or, for example, let's manage the uh, child marriages, the occurrences of child marriages in the barn, or uh, gender-based violence, or even violence against LGBTQ, because that's also happening in the barn, and all the kinds of different kinds of violence in a conflict-affected area, in a displacement situation. So it, it gets more difficult. So there are nuances Very to that. complicated, yeah. But the sisters, while Attorney Liza is grappling with improving the law so that it's more responsive, short of doing Lady Godiva strategies, because that's, yes. that's, completely, yes. that's completely haram. Let me ask Melindy and, uh, and Daphne. In the communities, yeah, the programs that, that you're doing, how are you closing the gender gap, especially in human in humanitarian work. What are the strategies that you employ to close the to try at least to close the gender gap? Let's start with Melinda, shall we? Okay, thank you, Ms. Amina. Like uh, within our ordination setup, there is this uh, joint city child protection GBB uh, working group in which as Ocha we also sit in in that uh, platform. And it's really interesting to listen, you know. Earlier, you, you made mention that if, F, uh, if women is involved in programming, everyone benefits. And we look into what's really that outcome, collective outcome, such that, that everyone would support the uh, women's role. And I think in the last, the last meeting that we had, there's really like a bit of 
a lot of discussions what to do, how to improve the way things we are doing. And um, women within the humanitarian community, there, there's a lot of women, uh, humanitarian workers at the front line and having them there help us achieve that goal because there are issues that only women humanitarian can deal with women in the communities, sensitive mothers. And if it's not through women humanitarians, these issues will remain invisible, will not be seen because they're, they're afraid to talk about it. It's so sensitive. So I think by putting more women in leadership position in the communities, in, among the volunteers, taking that lead in that community organizations, that would really help identify those gaps that uh, that we see. Uh, and there will be proper reporting, enhanced reporting mechanism, and, uh, and that response will be given to those issues that are seen. Yeah, I'm just sharing uh, all of these discussions that we had in our, you know, uh, in our last uh, CPGBV um, meeting. And not only, you know, after they report, they report the problems in the community, uh, what are we to do? It's really providing adequate resources and support in legal and at the same time economically because some women are afraid to come out. Those who face GBV are afraid to come out because they're so dependent and there's less formal uh, support economically that are given to them. So, uh, yeah, I think if, uh, having that kind of leadership role within the at the community level is really crucial. It's, it's merely, merely we, you really need to try and close the gender gap. But I guess it's getting a little bit harder. I mean, the pandemic uh, has shown us the couple of years of uh, the pandemic that dried up resources for capacitating women, for instance, for work on uh, humanitarian assistance. A lot of the resources were really focused on uh, on dealing with the pandemic. So, Daphne, in, in your particular case, in the communities that you work, what was the strategy that you utilized to try and close the gender gap? Because women, uh, they're even prevented from going out because of the fear of uh, COVID and also because of the, um, the rise, the continuing rise uh, of threats of extremism. What was your strategy, Daphne? So in terms of the our strategies as well in improving gender gap, one of the areas that we're looking, uh, we are working into is strategically as well, work with women leaders as champions. And those women leaders that we work with, they also become multipliers at their own communities. So in that way, we are not only capacitating one women, but we're capacitating one community you know, of women. So uh, that's also one of the strategies that we are working in terms of you know, improving the gender gap. For example, uh, in NP, we work closely with women leaders who are doing conflict resolution, mediation at the community level. So we include them in the mechanisms that we organized we call it uh, early warning early response so in that mechanism we capacitate women leaders at the community who are already doing conflict resolutions and those women became champions of their communities and we also provide platform for them to engage other women in their communities as well and even men so we strategically identify you know women champions who can also you know, bring the voices of other women and influence other women in their communities. 
And it, it's uh, for us, uh, it's a no-brainer, right? We get women involved in anything and the chances of success, you know, success are improved because women are more, maybe I'm biased, okay? But women are more inclusive because we think of family and children. We tend to be a little bit more forward looking, not, not, not short term. And maybe this is one of the reasons why ASEAN is now drafting a regional plan of action for women, peace, and security. Because I think maybe more leaders within ASEAN, within the member states, have finally figured, yeah, let's let's try and support more women to be engaged in uh, women, peace, and security. The regional plan of action is still in draft form. The hope is that it will be approved during the meeting, the summit of the leaders of the member states that's in um, November. But I have heard that the Philippines, which is the first country in Asia to have a national action plan on women, peace, and security, I have heard that we're not that happy with the, you know, the participation of uh, women, with the engagement of women in issues of women, peace, and security. Lisa, you were very much involved in the National Action Plan for Women, Peace, and Security. What do you think? Are, is this improving the participation of uh, women, or should something more be done? Yes, I, w- I was involved in the NAP WPS and the RAP, the Regional Action Plan on Women, Peace, and Security during ARMM, which extended, spilled over into BARM. And then currently, the Bangsamoro Women Commission has also drafted, together with other women leaders, the uh, RAP or BARM for Women, Peace, and Security, but it's only for until 2022. But as you know, since 2019, uh, when we were already drafting this, by 2020, the pandemic happened until now. And so there has been a delay uh, right. and been ba- uh, barriers to the effective implementation of this plan. And we're looking at improving the plan and expanding this and make sure that it is implemented, especially on women, peace, and security, the issue of uh, gender-based violence in the context of conflict. And personally, I think we have to do more about this because gender-based violence in a humanitarian situation are actually abuses that are rooted in power inequalities. So this would demand progressive policies, especially in the context of war, and then you have poverty, and then you have crisis, and this inequality is further exacerbated. So we need to recognize that a lot of these abuses that are happening, including the rape cases and other cases, are actually influenced by the women's economic autonomy. So I, um, mm-hmm. I think it's something that we need to also focus on and uh, which is part of my work in Kalisa Action Network mm-hmm. or looking at their sense of capacity to earn and have financial resources of their own. Because if they feel that they do not have economic power, so in the long right. run, no, women empowerment actually has two dimensions and these are resources 
and agency. And so we should continue our efforts in investing in human development. And I think that should be incorporated in the National Action Plan on Women, Peace, and Security. We can capacitate them, train them, what are their rights. But if they are not economically empowered, they don't have any source of uh, financing their yeah. uh, lives, they don't have livelihoods, then they remain you know, powerless. They don't have the agency to become the leaders that they should be. That they are actually. So I think economic empowerment is very important. Yep, you're absolutely right. You know, the decades that I've been working with, uh, with women at the community level, at trying to help organize the stages, for instance, they would always say, help us first with livelihood. Because yes. how can we help others when we don't even have money to pay that price again to come to this meeting? And, okay. you know, that, that absolutely makes sense. And we need to ensure that the economic empowerment of women is part of the plan. And I think in the regional plan of action of ASEAN, it is there. But as far as the our own national action plan is concerned, Melindy, what are your comments? I mean, are we behind here? Are we uh, delivering less than than what is promised in the National Action Plan for Women, Peace, and Security? Thank you for following that up, Amina, because I'm also, I also wanted to share that when it comes to planning processes, and even during pandemic, we know there have been some spike of GBV cases. Others are unreported or underreported. But within the humanitarian community, every time there's an emergency, we put together a humanitarian action plan. And it's really deliberate that we have, we, uh, we request all the clusters to look into uh, the gender aspect of their programming. And uh, and that includes have, having a GAM or gender and AIDS markers. So that's how we uh, track whether your in the, the intervention, the plan interventions would address the gender gap in this humanitarian response. There are a lot of efforts that are going on. I think even uh, from among us, there's just a bit confusion as to GBV or gender equality programming. But nonetheless, uh, this has been really a clarion call from the headquarters, regional office, and even with the RCHC, our head of the head of the UN system, to really give, you know, to strengthen the, the response and to close the, this gender gender gap and to address the different gender needs in the in the community. And I think during pandemic, our development development wing of UN put together also another plan that would support all these planning processes of the the government, and that includes also the gender aspect. You know, uh, sometimes, because I've been in government most of my life, and some leaders from civil society would always say, Ay, nako, Amina, planning and planning and planning. Just do it. What do you think, Daphne? How is the National Action Plan on WPS performing? I mean, are we delivering what is promised, or should more be done? I think there were already certain milestones. We cannot say that there's none. No, uh, there's already certain milestones, but there's still a lot more to be done, and especially at the grassroots level, increasing participation of women at the grassroots level. When we talk about women, peace and security, is really very important to sustain. For example, here in Mindanao, especially at the Bangsamoro region. To sustain the gains of the peace process, there's really a need 
to you know, engage more grassroots women at the and uh, when we talk about PCDA, all the more that no, you know, women should be engaged you know, in, in this aspect. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ay, nako, sisters. I think our conversation could take uh, hours and hours and uh, we'll still find more time is needed. But we have got some friends from Mindanao who want to join the conversation. Let's welcome them, shall we? We have Carmen, Lauzon, Gatmaitan, Memen. Hi, Memen. And there's uh, Ken, Mimbida. President of the University Peace Club. Ken, are you there? Kim. And uh, we have Alvin Pembarat, who's from MSU Maguindanao. Hi, Alvin. Do we have Siti Akima? I am Siti Akima Alipo, but Alvin. you may call me Kim. You may call me Kim, but never call me Siti. <laughs> welcome, welcome. So, oh, this is our chance to ask questions from our wonderful humanitarian workers here. Memen, are you there? Oh, I think he's having problems logging in. So, would any of you want to react or ask a burning question from uh, MP Liza, mm -hmm. from Daphne, and from uh, Melindy? Let's let's start with uh, well, let's call them the roses with our honorary roses. Alvin, do you have a, a question that you wanted to raise? Yes. Good morning, everyone. I am glad that I am the only man in this uh, talk show. But I uh, okay, okay. I have here a question. Um, this is addressed to our three speakers. You no. Know? My question will be, in the context of Maguindanao, where most tribe people, youth, and women do not get involved, most of the time in humanitarian and social development, especially those who are in conflict-affected areas and marginalized islands and communities of Bangsamoro. Well, in IPDM, we adhere to reach out people, especially those in IP communities. However, there is this stigma. There is this stigma that women should only be doing this and that. So maybe it is because of what their culture has labeled them to be. Now, my question to our speakers, as a humanitarianist, do you think religion and culture are, I don't know if I'm using the exact word, are hindrances in maximizing the full potential of women in the context of Bangsamoro? Wow, some thesis yana. Attorney Liza, do you have a response That's almost similar to the question, uh, one of the questions in my thesis <laughs> at, the, at the Manila University. Um, is religion a hindrance? Is Islam a hindrance? Are cultural beliefs of the IPs a hindrance? Actually, no. If you're going to use the gender lens, the feminist legal approach, to read and reread a holy text 
and also cultural practices and cultural beliefs, you will find that, in fact, specifically for Islam, Sharia is very supportive of women empowerment, women economic empowerment, and gender equality and gender justice. And there are sufficient, more than enough, support for this. It's not a theory, but it's actually it's a concept and it's a principle, a universal principle that is present in all religions. Well, I can I can vouch for for Islam. So it's it's not a hindrance, but the hindrance is in the interpretation, in the belief. And these, the interpretations that are being made is rooted in patriarchy. And that's the problem. I think all, all of the issues on gender, uh, inequality, discrimination, uh, violence, they are all rooted in patriarchy. And there is patriarchy in almost all communities, all societies, in all religions. And that is why we need to surface more leaders, not just, not just the men, but especially women who are able to assert, assert their rights within the context of their own culture or their own religion, like in this case, Islam. So it's not a hindrance. You can look at it as a glass halfway full or halfway empty, but I would like to look at it as a glass halfway full. So let's be positive and we can actually find inspiration, in fact, in religion. But we need to put out patriarchy. Oh, me too. Me too, Attorney Liza. I'm a half full, half gla- uh, you know, glass half full kind of a person. How about Ken? Do you have uh, a question yes. that you want to raise of our, our speakers? Uh, sharing lang. Yes, good morning. I agree yes, with what Ma'am Daphne said, that uh, women have limited opportunities, but then I also see the increasing role of Muslim women in conflict, participating in conflict resolutions or in peace building, and that uh, there's changing culture where there is now an increasing confidence of Muslim women as compared before, where, where we are expected to be conservative. This, despite the, the pronouncement of some datus emphasizing that women should concentrate their roles in their respective homes. Like I remember how some of our men respondents, how are some respondents responded to our questions when we implemented our study entitled Participation of Marino Women in Settling Disputes in, in Conflict. And these men emphasized that women should concentrate their roles in their respective homes. And that there are many respondents who insist that women's major responsibility is domestic and they should not be allowed to resolve conflicts. But we have so many women now occupying higher positions and are part of peace building, fighting for women empowerment. And there are also men supporting of, of women. And I also agree what Mom Amina Russell said that we should get more women involved in everything. And uh, yeah, we should encourage more collaborations and harmonies between men and among, between women to encourage and inspire others. Thanks for that, Ken. So I'm sure that you'll do a lot being president of the University Peace Club. Now let's go to Ken. Do you have a, a question that you want to ask our, our speakers? Yes, ma'am. I have here. 
So since World of Humanitarian Day is about of celebration of being humanism, so my question is: Despite of pandemic and other bad things happening in our world, so how can a simple individual promote humanism? Can we start with Daphne? Daphne. Yeah, I think you should always no start with yourself. In Islam, they say that no a simple smile is already a sunnah. So that's the a free gift that you can you no know, share to anyone. So I I think that's also one of the best form of humanism that you can exercise every day in your life. Goodwill, huh? Melindy, your response. Yes, true. I think everyone can can do it, can contribute. Humanism is really about saving lives and alleviating human suffering. It's about protection of civilians, and all of us have that capacity, whether individual, within family, and within community. We just have to harness it to, you know, uh, share more uh, in our local area. So uh, that's not uh, that's not exclusive to. Uh, humanitarian organizations, but more so the first responders to any emergency is really the smallest unit, the family and the community themselves. So, yeah, so uh, hopefully we can strengthen that uh, at the community level. How about you, Attorney Liza? Um, I agree with, with what Melindy was, was saying. It starts in the family. So if you are a part of a family, I think you can start. So for the youth, for example, you can start that within the family, helping your siblings, helping your parents. They say that it is you have to develop the, the skills to be a humanitarian. But it's actually innate in every human being to care for someone other than your own self. And so I think that has to be nurtured, that has to be enhanced. Just a simple matter of reaching out to other people and being compassionate even to animals. And I think, I, I believe that taking care of pets for children, that's a good way to start developing in the, their personalities this compassion and uh, being a humanist. Yep, you're absolutely right there, Attorney Liza. That during the pandemic, I'm sure all of you have seen, you know, instances of uh, humanitarian work heartfelt do you remember how, for instance, the uh, community stores uh, started? I mean, that was that was really uh, fantastic. Now let's have Memen. Miss Carmen Lauzon Katmaitan, do you have Hello, a question? Thank you, Amina. Yes, actually, I have a question, but I just want to comment that the, and affirm the, the responses of our speakers about the National Action Plan. And you were saying about the Regional Action Plan for ASEAN. Maybe a pat on the back, both as a milestone and probably also a bad business because both good and bad. I agree with the speakers about the milestones on the women's business security in the Philippines. And as you were also saying, Mom Amina, that there's also a regional action plan. But uh, good news and bad news. In the Philippines, the first NGU that has an action plan on WPS is really the arm, now the barn. It's the only one in the Philippines. So it's sad because... We still need, you know, the government to really bring this down to all the local government agencies and the local government units so that the, the WPS can really be implemented in the country. So that's, that's one point. And a question now, specifically in celebration of the World Humanitarian Day, I'd like to ask Mom Melindy, because I was really very curious about the theme of the celebration this year. It, it's taken from the, the same mention in the introduction of Melina. It takes a village to raise a child. But now this year's celebration, in, is, is this in 
the Philippines only or is it the global level? Or you're, you're looking at it takes a village also to do humanitarian action. So I'm really curious and how's that going to be celebrated in the Philippines? To Mom Glindy. Thank you, man, for bringing that up. So yes, that's a really a global celebration. Different countries, different country offices will have their own way of celebrating and commemorating the World Humanitarian Day. Before, WAC used to be, you know, just to commemorate the, used to be focused on commemorating the lives uh, lost uh, in line of humanitarian work. But now it's really about a campaign on the different concerns that we face in doing the humanitarian work. And the theme or the hashtag, it takes a village to raise a child, is used this time to campaign more, uh, gather more support into the different aspects of our work. So here, men in, Magind- in Magindanao, in Barm, we're having a, an IDP, a community assembly, and in SPMS, an area where we had protracted displacement. So it will be widely participated by different actors because that's really our message that it takes a village to support a humanitarian work. It takes a village to support water, sanitation, hygiene. It takes a village to expand gender or to have gender parity, to have gender equality. So it takes everyone. It's not an, an action of one agency alone. It's not a function of one or two um, organizations alone, but even local communities, the IDPs themselves, those who are pro- affected, the military, the non-state armed groups have to be all engaged, you know, to respect the humanitarian law and the uh, and even to respect the humanitarian work so we can have access and people, the affected communities will reach the, you know, receive the aid that, that they need and in, in that way we can save lives. So that's really the key message of World Humanitarian Day that it takes everyone, not just the humanitarian workers, development, peace build, building, particularly in areas where we constantly have displacement and where else in do we have that, but in more so in yeah, SPMS um Area. So that's where we hope to have, we're having that commemoration and celebration of humanitarian work uh, on this day on August 19. Thank you so much uh, for that, Melindy. And now time has uh, run out as usual. So shall we end by asking our speakers about their, their message to our listeners? And by the way, uh, we have a substantial percentage who are young. Your message for them on why it takes the village. Attorney Liza. Thank you very much, Mom Amina. And I totally agree that it takes a village to do humanitarian work, to provide humanitarian response. This also talks about uh, self-reliance and not relying on other people and other organizations or even the government to survive a humanitarian crisis. And so I really hope that with the celebration of the World Humanitarian Day, we also focus on women's participation and representation in humanitarian work. And I think this is uh, the current political transition and transformation in the Bangsamoro region offers a very unique opportunity to address exclusion in political and civic spaces in the context of conflict and displacement. And so we should prioritize integration of uh, gender responsive policies into all of these new systems, including the systems that we have established or are trying to establish on uh, humanitarian response. Hopefully, we will be able to do this, inshallah. Thank you, Attorney Laista. 
Daphne, what is your message on to our audience on uh, It Takes a Village? Yeah, it takes a village to do humanitarian action because in every humanitarian situation, the first responders should be you know, the village who are, you know, the, who are directly affected from the humanitarian crisis. So each individual in, in the community has a significant role to play and to address their current situation. And hopefully, in those significant roles, hopefully women will also be able to, you know, play their significant role in addressing crisis situations. It's not only the humanitarian actors who are responsible in doing humanitarian work. If we can do it, you can also do it. Thank you, Daphne. And Melindy, what's your message as we celebrate World Humanitarian Day? Thank you very much, Amina, for this opportunity again. So to all the listeners, young people, women, men, boys, young boys and uh, young girls, it takes a village to do a humanitarian action. Whatever uh, contribution we can give, that is really important. What we work on, what we believe on matters. And giving our uh, small contribution will really and it, it will have a, a multiplier effect. And hopefully to the young people uh, who are listening to this podcast that we will be purposive, you know, as early, as young as we are now, we are, we are purposive in what we do. We look at our life with a mission and a plan and see that in a bigger worldview, what we can, how we can contribute. Whatever you're doing, hopefully you can include the work for humanity, uh, your contribution, your voluntarism would start no matter how young you are at this stage. So thank you, Amina, for this opportunity to flag our work and particularly the World Humanitarian Day. Well, it's time for us to say our farewells again. This has been an interesting hour of conversation. And I must thank our Member of Parliament, Attorney Liza Alamia, our um, representative from the, from the UN, Melindy Malam and Daphne from the, the Nonviolent uh, Peace Force, uh, Daphne Makatimbol, and the guests who joined us from Mindanao who asked their questions. So thank you so much, Alvin, Ken, Kim, and my dear Memin for joining us. So meanwhile, I echo uh, what our guests have said. It takes a village to support humanitarian work, but I particularly like what Daphne said, that sometimes all it takes is a smile, a smile to turn a non-friend into a friend, and that would be the start of humanitarianism, of humanitarian work. So thank you all for listening to us. Thank you for our fantastic guests today. This is Amina Rasul from the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy saying bye for now and see you again next week for another episode of She Talks Peace. Bye! She Talks Peace is brought to you in partnership with Podcast Network Asia and Podmetrics, the easiest way to monetize your podcast. For more information, check out their website at podcastnetwork.asia and podmetrics.co.
The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia, the hosts of the program, or other programs of the network. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.